podcast, the only book club podcast that always tips our waitresses well and would never offer them a ride home. It's not a good sign, folks. You should never mm-hmm. hit on people at work. Service people, uh, you're doing great out there, and I apologize for any patrons who treat you inappropriately, Amanda. Have you yep. tipped Have you tipped a service worker lately? I guess, have you I gone anywhere? Tip. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, you know, tip tip through your, your money, not your gestures. That's always more appreciated. <laughs> if you don't understand the references we're making to helping service industry folks, that is because this is a book club episode. We are, as I said, the Lightly Literary Podcast. I'm joined by co-host Amanda. Hey, Amanda. Hello. You can find us on social media. We've got accounts up at Facebook and Instagram at the Lightly Literary Podcast, all one word. Our mission is to bring book clubs and book reviews recommendations to you, our dedicated listeners. And today our mission is to discuss and analyze the second half of the novel Native Speaker by Chang Ray Lee. This, if you found this feed, this episode is part two of that book. So if you found this mistakenly, you can go find part one or the book recommendation for that novel. But our goal here today is to discuss the second half, including a terribly upsetting episode involving a service worker. So that was the illusion from before. Amanda, you chose this book. I gave you the prompt to pick something that had been that was about immigration, I think. I, I thought for a second it might have been the Korean one, but then I realized that was not that. So I think it was... <laughs> yeah, it was immigration. You you asked yes. me to choose a book about immigration, like an, an, an immigrant experience. Yeah, and I think, I think this fit the bill by the end, though I know in the first book club we discussed how surprised I was by the spy thriller components of it and the mm-hmm. sort of organization. By the end of this, did you feel satisfied by this pick as an immigrant story? Yes, 100%. Yeah. Yeah, we'll talk. We'll talk about that really shortly. Let's get into it. And I guess I didn't say this part out loud, but book clubs include full spoilers. And now that we're moving into part two of Native Speaker by Chang Ray Lee, we're going to be spoiling anything we want to from the text. A lot of our segments today in the second book club will be analytical in nature. We're going to be spoiling whatever we choose to, etc. So if you're along for that ride, we welcome you. And if you are not, hey, We'll be in the feed. Come back and listen to this whenever you get a chance to. All right, let's move to highs and lows then, Amanda. This is the first part of the second book club. We just want to discuss some things from the work that we thought were high points, things we really enjoyed, and then also discuss some low moments, maybe things we didn't think worked very well. Why don't you start us off either with a high or a low? Sure. Um, I had more highs than lows just because I really did Mm -hmm. enjoy this. Um, So I will begin with one of my highs. Um... And I'm going to go with the discussion, um, Chong Ray Lee's discussion of uh, race and national perspectives. I thought mm-hmm. that his perspective was really unique in the way that he depicted it as well. He kind of takes pains to point out that not everything is like quite as either or as um, it's often depicted and how... America, it according to like the immigrant experience, is not divided by race. Although mm-hmm. yes, there is a division in race. It's actually more so divided by American versus not American, um, and how American you are, which goes to play with the the language motif that's throughout the the novel as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so he. Um, has a in 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 the novel there's a conversation between Kwong and Henry um where Kwong is kind of like trying to explain the the subtleties of that like the minority experience in America 
Mm-hmm. And he says, the NAACP has invited me to certain forums, but I feel token there. Everybody is hesitant, cautious. I can see they're not sure if I'll promote an agenda that suits them. If I mention the first things about special enterprise zones or more openness toward immigrants, I'm suddenly off limits. Or worse, I'm Whitey's boy. And then Henry responds, it's still a black and white world. And that's on page 194. And then on page 196 Quang goes on to explain that soon there will be more brown and yellow than black and white and yet the politics especially minority politics remain cast in terms that barely acknowledge us it's an old syntax people still vote for what they think they want they're calling on a bright memory of a time that has gone rather than voting for and demanding what they need for their children they're still living in the glow of civil rights uh, fur there's valuable light there, but little heat. And if I don't receive the blessing of African-Americans, am I still a minority politician? So there's a lot of uh, questioning and discussion of what it means to be a minority, especially from the immigrant immigrant perspective. And I think that it's just wonderfully complex in that way. And I really enjoy um, how Lee kind of introduces those topics into the novel itself. Yeah, Kwong too is such a fascinating figure to study for that because it his project does seem to build up some kind of coalition, multi-ethnic coalition of immigrants and people who presumably have been naturalized and are actually there legally, though it's clear by one of the plot points that a lot of the people he was supporting were also not there legally and just immigrated through other channels. But yeah, he is clearly fighting for some kind of broader coalition. It, the book, it's I found it at least in its descriptions of New York, its portrayal of New York, in, in almost any moment that it wants to get you into a feeling of the setting or make you feel like you're in a neighborhood, I think it talks about, is it Flushing a lot? Is that a street, one of the streets that they... There's just yeah. neighborhoods. I think it mostly takes place in Queens, right? Yeah, there's like mention of Manhattan, Queens, the Bronx, mm-hmm. and Flushing as well. Yeah, yeah, and I yeah, and so whenever they're in Queens or the the place where Kwong's demographic is, you ever notice how every description they always it's like I can't just mention I saw let's say there was a Vietnamese vendor selling food. It's always there's ten other peoples present with different backgrounds, different countries of origin. It's just the book is so purposeful in really making this seem like a complex really dense tapestry of peoples and that was maybe kwang's ultimate promise that he failed to deliver on well that he kind of didn't fail he was delivering on it in a way we'll get into that later but yeah so i think it it does have such fascinating things to say about the sort of alienating feeling of being an immigrant and it's did it feel hyper new york to you because I feel like the way that kind of ethnic enclaves, I think, is maybe the social term for them or the sociologist term for them or something. But the way that they can crop up in other cities, none of it will ever amount to what it feels like in New York, I think. Yeah. But that's just because of New York's vastness or something. It does it does create a different sensation or something, at least in this book. Yeah, yeah I agree. It's, it, it's like a, um, just a, a macro version of what like any enclave would 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 have yeah. um, around so like even here in charlotte there's like a huge not a huge but there's there's a significant korean um population that very much like sticks together in a lot of ways and yeah charlotte it's, has it's a, like if yeah it has a few immigrant communities the other one that i am exposed to a lot through my work is the indian community and so 
But it, I just can't imagine if, if let's say, an author in Charlotte wrote about them being an, their parents being Indian immigrants or maybe parents being Korean immigrants. It just would not have the tone of this book. It, it would not. I, I just can't imagine the descriptions and the feeling would feel as crossroads. It's just like every description is a crossroads of t- 20 things. <laughs> it just feels so, uh, you know, it's like New York is a city just piled up on top of things piling up on each other and creating just a really intense commingling. But yeah, that was kind of Kwong's mission too. I don't, we have to get this pronunciation out of the way before I begin talking about it in depth because I'm about to, but is the money system he was running then called, is it called a G gay or like, what do we do with the G's? (laughs) Gay. Just a gay. Gay. So it is just, the G's just kind of slide together. G gay because G gay means like super stew. (laughs) Hey, he was putting together one hell of a stew. (laughs) His, his gay was one hell of a G gay. I'll tell you that. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. I think I've made those metaphors work. I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe not. <laughs> this will. I'll segue this or transition this into a high moment that I had. So I th- I like that the story presented the there's the bomb, and then you think the climax is when it's revealed that he was the one who incidentally called in the bomb on himself because he would reveal. You know, he found out Eduardo had betrayed him, and but then the, I think the actual twist, the final dagger, you know shank was on 305 and it then felt extra vicious because just when you think the book is going to have some kind of denouement about you know oh man he's really compromised and this is why he's so depressed and he took this insane action and is paying for it then you realize that many people in the see i already forgot the pronunciation i keep wanting to say gay but it's just a gay gay just a gay. Um, yeah. In the gay, like there, many of them are getting deported, and there's the scene, pretty haunting scene with the is it I, INS agent, and the way he delivers the lines on the cable, and the way that the employee there is like, what the fuck is he talking about? And then mm-hmm. he, you know, he says something. Let me find the line here because it was pretty haunting. Says something like, no, they're already arrested. Oh yeah, he says, no, sir. The director answers matter of factly. He almost smiles. Of the, of course, the girl is in serious condition and immobile. We'll talk to her if and when she is able. But we have hit all the suspected illegals and their families at their residences early this morning. It should be pretty much over by now. We have them all. Hit is the verb there doing a lot of the heavy lifting. Also, the casual way he talks about that. Did she end up being sixteen year old service girl? Yeah, I think she was 16 and 16 illegal. 17, yeah. Yeah, and the, yeah, just the casual, you know, casting her to the side. It's not so important for them. They got their list of people, and I don't know. It just felt like it was clear that Hoagland was involved in that at some point. He was he was working all the sides. Apparently, he may have had some connection to Eduardo as well. He's just, you know, his tendrils are in everything. It just I thought that was just a really brutal final way of and in terms of the themes and ideas around immigration one final really brutal way of showing kwang kind of failing and it would just felt yeah. i don't know maybe it's a little too vicious or something maybe the bombing and his sort of his fault personal falling down as a politician would, would have been enough but this felt like that extra level of just cruelty in the world or something mm-hmm yeah, yeah. I, I thought that was the, the way that that turned out or twisted, I thought was, I don't know, pretty fitting. Also, I mean, talk about setting and, and like 
turning a scene on its head. There was that nice moment where there's, again, 20 different, eth- I'm exaggerating, but there, there are all these different peoples, all these different ethnic groups at this Chinese place all looking forward to dinner. This is a place where, like, at the scene outside of it, when they learn this news, it's sort of like, there's a bit of harmony, right? Racial harmony or something like, well, well we can all mm-hmm. gather around this food. That's a common place for a lot of people to end, to end up agreeing in, in ways they otherwise wouldn't. Is like, well, we can eat this meal together. We all enjoy this restaurant. But then, of course, they get that news. And, yeah, it's just a lot of things fall apart in that scene. Yeah, I, I loved it, too, uh, as you pointed out, that it, it seemed like the bombing itself would be the the actual, like, conflict, the main uh, climax there. But, yeah, I, I love that that sneaky real climax there right afterwards it was really well done yeah yeah and i i'll segue this into another one of my highs then but i i was mixed on i did think the scene when kwong finally admitted what he had done on 290 i thought that scene in the what do they call it like a pleasure house a bar but with kind of waitresses kind of like entertainment waitresses i forget what the term was in the book for it I'm just going to um, call it a bar, but it was clearly yeah, not quite, kind of it, you know, they're drinking, but also there's entertainment. Um, there's a term for it. I, the only similar institution I can think of is a place in Japan, in Japan, a Japanese thing that I have it's read a, a little, yeah, sort of, it, do they still have that in the, in the modern world? They just have kind of transformed it a bit. Yeah, they, they still yeah. have it. It's sort yeah, of like, yeah, it's like entertainment. Things. You pay for conversation almost. It's sort of like a mm-hmm. companionship plus drinking environment. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yep. Anyway, that's the only the only analogy or the not even analogy, the only similarity I could think of at the time. Anyway, I was a bit confused. The dialogue with Sherry at that moment, I think, was, I don't know, maybe a bit too fraught or something, but it, it maybe in a way that was meant to be awkward. I think it was a very supposed to be a very uncomfortable scene at that point. And I, I suppose we're all supposed to supposed to infer maybe that they're having an affair or not and i don't know kwong's behavior in that moment the way he was being really domineering and kind of making the girl dance with henry i don't maybe that was supposed to be a kind of twisted disturbing version of a father figure scene we know that kwong's been kind of a father figure so at that point it was kind of a here's a hyper masculine domineering thing to do but it's sexual too and it I thought that scene was maybe a bit confused. There was maybe too much going on. But I think that the ultimate revelation clicked a lot of things into place. It was a satisfying way to end kind of the spy mystery aspect of it. It also, mm-hmm. of course, leaves Kwong, leaves Kwong so compromised that if you're following Henry as a character wondering how their relationship is going to develop, how this job is going to progress for him, it does put in a massive twist of who who will he be allegiant to? Who will he be loyal to? And what will he ultimately do with this information he has? So mm-hmm. I thought, despite some of the language in that scene, I remember some of the Sherry dialogue being, I don't know, it felt a bit stiff or something. I think actually a lot of the dialogue in this book feels maybe too inferential or something. There's, It's maybe a little too uh, stiff or curt at times, like it cuts off before it should. Um, but that, I think, can be literary at times too. But anyway, yeah. so I thought that was kind of a high moment too, other than the maybe some of the background thematic stuff being a bit too confusing or something for me or convoluted, but I did enjoy that revelation. I'm not sure how it affected you. Yeah. I, I was surprised by that, but I I thought that it fit well with, um, Kwong up to that point had been suffering in silence, right? Just like, um, Henry's dad. Right. So it's that 
Korean experience for for the men where and and the women as well because his mom did the same thing right you whatever you are feeling you do it in silence and then that particular scene that's when he finally when Kwong is like actually verbalizing and acting out on it so it's like a breakdown it's almost like a break from the the Korean community expectations in some ways uh, when he actually does all that and it's fitting that it's in a a korean bar with like um a korean girl there that he kind of takes it out on because it's like he's he's almost turned his back on that community um finally like and and kind of Mm -hmm. like admitting that he has yeah the the fact that in that scene it doesn't end end with him well obviously he you know gets her into a car crash and potentially paralyzes her and that's all tbd the narrative doesn't resolve that but yeah, even in the moment in the scene, you know, the, it says the size of her hands and wrists makes his head and back look giant. So he's it's already this imposing. I mean, he's doing damage to himself. And yes, this woman, you would presume from his own community, I guess girl, should 16, but it, from his own community, too. It feels very much like a betrayal. I thought it was a fitting moment, too. I like this in the scene when the, the whole thing he wants is for... Henry, he's, the last thing he says is say it um, say it knows Henry for me and then Henry's response is to say nothing which is in terms of Henry's development and kind of his status as a character he is this kind of looming silent figure at times perhaps a bit detached from the world and other people he's preserved you know and has learned that tradition maybe and so yeah then he says he tells me then you can go to hell like the final scene he has with Kwong is he's just he just looks at him you know it doesn't he doesn't engage with him he doesn't talk to him about what he did You know, the final sentence being, he believes I am a necessary phantom in his house. I'm a lantern to him, constant unwinking, but I am gone. And so, yeah, he he was relying on Henry, perhaps, in an unstated way to be a, I don't know, a bit of a son, a trustworthy son type figure ever since, especially since Eduardo betrayed him. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it was just kind of a fitting for Henry, kind of bold. I don't know if it would have made a stronger character statement if he would have yelled out something at that point and finally been a bit more vocal maybe, but it did feel really quietly tragic, but in a way that fit with what Henry had been doing and the person he was. Yeah, yeah. So. Well, Henry also, right, like Kwong is almost asking Henry for forgiveness, for acceptance as like Henry almost as a a representative of the Korean community of the immigrant mm-hmm. community in a lot of ways. And so Henry's silence, which is indicative of like his Korean upbringing mm-hmm. is pretty fitting. And also is like, you can be construed as condemnation, but also it's just how, how far Kwong has gone from being also a part of that Korean community of, of, of silence and silent suffering and stuff like that. And then, the 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 contrast between them so how that yeah, pairs up that was, to that scene was great yeah how that pairs up to the exploitation of that girl in that scene to the yeah i mean it's i know she's working and everything but not legally and it's a i mean it's a sexual assault he's kissing and groping her i mean i, I don't know again it's complicated because i know there are establishments even legal ones where that is the behavior within within the boundaries of the behavior but i i don't know what he's assaulting her I, <laughs> i'm not really sure of the verbiage or legal terms but that's it so those two things combined makes for a kind of a grotesque scene for sure yeah any other highs for you because i have some brief lows that they're not i won't elaborate on too much but feel free to talk about some highs yeah um i had a couple other highs um one of them being the language motif which i had mentioned um last week on on the episode on on the previous episode. And um, I just think that 
especially in conjunction with his discussion of like how America is actually divided into like immigrants versus Americans rather than Mm -hmm. just on race. Um, The language motif was really great and really emphasizing that. And it's, it's a great way to, to kind of like emphasize how alienating the immigrant experiences for non-native English speakers um, specifically. Mm-hmm. And so even silence, right, which we were just talking about, is a kind of language um, that Lee uses to emphasize differences in culture, which further serves to isolate certain groups. Um, and I pulled one quote um, from that for page 340. It says, Americans are wonderful and exuberant people. They dance, they play fight, they put up, they puff up their lips and blow out their chest. They enjoy using their hands. They seem to live always at a football match. They are every shape and color, but they still share this talk. And this is the other tongue they have learned. This must be the special language. So the almost like lack of reserve mm-hmm. um, in contrast to like the the Korean culture that um, Henry has lived through. So I, mm-hmm. I thought that the, the language motif is consistent, it's well done, and it really serves to highlight the, one of his themes throughout the novel. So I really enjoyed that. Yeah. Did you find that ending fitting then in a way? Because isn't that one of the last, that's got to be one of the last passages. Yeah, that was in like the second to last chapter or something yeah, like that. But yeah, yeah, yeah the ending is uh, when you look at, if you tie it back to the the motif where we begin with a list, right, which is a, a form of communication and language. And then it ends with him helping essentially his wife to become a speech therapist and all about the language there. Like it, it all ties together really nicely. Yeah, I that's one of my kind of lows. We'll, we'll talk about that after your other high, though. Any other highs oh. you want to talk about? Yeah, um, I've got one more high, and that is um, there's some really beautiful imagery and some excellent metaphors throughout the novel. Mm-hmm. Um, word choice is very important both to the character Henry and also, obviously, to the author. And um, so I pulled a quote from page 234, and it says, Sometimes I'll still say riddle for little or bent for vent, but I always hear myself displacing the two languages, conflating them, maybe conflagrating them, for there's so much rubbing and friction, a fire always threatens to blow up between the tongues. Friction, affliction. And so I really enjoyed that quote as, as an example because I thought that the fire imagery was great because it e- emphasizes the conflict in the language motri- motif, um, which is also about the immigrant experience. And just like the particular word choices there, obviously very carefully chosen. So I enjoyed, um, I guess, just overall the style that's used in the book. Yeah, no, it, I, that quote is pretty in a pretty excellent emblem or representation of it because... He moves from he moves from sound to sound. He ends on this image that's really evocative, this like this burning together. Then he expands, rubbing in friction, the fire that blows. So he's kind of he goes in further on it. Then he does the you you know the really poetic thing when prose writers do it, which is just following it up with a couple of words for effect, friction, mm-hmm. affliction. And it's maybe that's it's a little more rhymy that passage than maybe the entire book has been, but just the way that's made, just the way that those images are conjured, played with, put down, like elaborated upon, that does feel, that's a great quote to represent the style for sure. I don't know if you're going to use that in the book rack, but (laughs) that would be like a very fair one to say, this is the ebb and flow of the, you know, a lot of his writing. 
Yeah. Though maybe not in the dialogue. The dialogue with the, the spy people really left me cold, but I think it was maybe intended to. So I think so. Well, with, with the spy people, he's it's meant to be like, that's not... He's uncomfortable with that because he tries to joke, right? And he tries to be more yeah. American in the way that he talks to, like, Hoagland versus his more natural state of almost silence and, like, very reserved and, and um, clipped speech with, like family members yeah yeah i think that that's fair it's spy talk is always filled with double meanings and yeah it's you know, it's the, it's of the genre and everything so i think it was just going for but again though to me going from a paragraph like that some introspection like that to then really intense back and forth double entendre talk i don't know something about the the combination of those it's kind of an in, uh, juxtaposition that i i don't know it didn't th- put me off of either enough i enjoyed both of them and thought it worked but it did leave me feeling a little cold in some moments too um mm-hmm. let's talk about some lows then just briefly anyway mine are i wouldn't say they're stretches they're genuine reactions but they're not nearly as low as the highs i thought this book was pretty phenomenal so <laughs> i don't you know they're going to be pretty brief the conclusion uh, symbolically incredibly fitting really beautiful of uh, honestly a pick-me-up after a book that kind of needed it to an extent after a uh, the tragedy of kwong and the i mean to be um to be the final act being uh was it did they move back on their own or was he forcibly removed from the country i couldn't did, could you tell that Oh, but they um, leave, it don't did they? not clarify that, no. But it did say the last thing he heard was that they left, or he talks to the real estate agent, and she says, yeah, yeah they moved back to their country. I don't, maybe she didn't know. Maybe she's even yeah. just making sense. Anyway, that was, I think, I mean, that's the ultimate insult, is the he had taken this Korean principle, this um, financial interdependence to create this big community of peoples. Talk about an American ideal. He pulled off something really beautiful. And then of course, to have his fall result in that, right. To have it come down to, you can't be here anymore. You have to go back to a place that's very unlike America, at least in terms of race and ethnicity and homogeneity. I mean, that's, those are two cultures that are radically different in especially New York. I mean, there's parts of the U S that are not racially diverse at all, but I mean, to go from that, doing that in New York to being like, no, you're cast back is yeah. Such a symbolic kind of really devastating fall and change, I guess anyway. But yeah, so to have the ending scene with Henry and his, I, I guess wife still, I was going to say girlfriend, but they're, you know, they're back together. Anyway, it, teaching the classes, right, and trying to help kids with speech, it lines up thematically so well. It, it gives him this really, I don't know if it's a clear purpose now that he's not a spy, but it gives him something meaningful to do, a way to contribute, help people, and overcome obstacles that he so faced as an immigrant and kind of dealing with language. As you already mentioned, there's so many good metaphors in here, and the language about language is so beautiful. But this is where I get to my maybe own coldness as a teacher. Some of the final lines, right? Some of the final things they did. He mentions that at each, um, at the end of each session, we bid each kid goodbye. Many freelancers in, rotate in these weekly assignments, and we probably won't see the, them again this summer. I take off my mask, and we both hug and kiss each one. When I embrace them, half pick them up, they are just that size I will forever know, that very weight so wondrous to me and awful. I tell them I'll miss them. They don't quite know how to respond. I put them down. And then later, like, I think the final line of the book is worth reading. Now Leela calls out each one as best she can, taking care of every last pitch and accent. And I hear her speaking a dozen lovely and native languages, calling all the difficult names of who we are. It's, I thought the last line was really beautiful, but the, 
I don't know, that behavior in the classroom just feels too sentimental to me. It's almost too much on the nose there. It's too, almost too harmonious or something. It's mm-hmm. it could just be me re, like leading the very reading, sorry, the very literal lines of I hugged and kissed students who I'd never seen before today. That, I mean, that's insane to me. I don't that I wouldn't have done that with students I taught all year, let alone somebody <laughs> who I just met for a 2-hour class or a or a 1-day summer school class or something. I something yeah. about that felt so contrived and way too convenient but i i the names that the trying to manage the different languages the fact that he has gone from being this betrayer you know of his own people right he led to the downfall of kuang pretty much intentionally to having this as kind of a result i did enjoy it but some of those bits that scene just felt too much i don't know how you responded yeah, I, I loved the last, the very end, as you pointed out, I, I loved the idea of Lelia, who is this, like, angelic white figure, almost, right? In, yeah, in kind the of, yeah. Yeah, and she's, she is taking the pains to um, use language to um, incorporate these people rather than forcing her own language on them. I thought that was really beautifully symbolic. Um and yeah, with, with Henry, like picking them up and kissing them, I was like, okay, that's like a total character change, right? Like that's just, yeah. and I know that it's meant to be, um, a pivoting, right. Story mm-hmm. for him where he mm-hmm. goes from this like silent figure of like detachment to somebody who embraces himself and, and starts to really, uh, uh try to understand his own identity. I understand that, but yeah, I agree that it was just kind of like, eh, I don't know. I don't know about the, the realistic aspect of that. <laughs> well then I'll segue that into my other low final one. I'll talk about. And again, it was a brief scene when Lelia climbs the tree and they're having a discussion on my page to one, maybe they're having, I forget what they're debating about. I'll try and look it up quick while I'm talking, but there were moments of characterization in the book that I thought you can take characters who, and you always want to be hyper specific, make your characters unique, make them make the personalities pop, et cetera, all these generalizations about writing. But I think at times the characters here in Lee's novel, maybe it goes to the being overworked, maybe even feeling to me at least so foreign, not in terms of culture or race or something, but if so foreign in terms of just basic human behavior that if you have this adult climbing a tree in a park, like after an argument, I'm like, it's so childlike. And I, I think she is supposed to retain a bit of that wonder in her, maybe some of that innocence in a way, despite their history, mm-hmm. the way that especially the book concludes with her being a, a symbol. Yeah. Maybe even angelic, like you said, a symbol of sort of I don't know, unity, positivity, you know, at least trying something, right? Trying to be a figure to bring people together or something, try to have understanding. But anyway, that I for some reason that scene in the park stood out. I'm sure there were other moments I could think of, but yeah, just having her, um, it says they're picnicking in Central Park. I made her angry with some stupid comment about Stu or Mitt or something. And after we fought a little, she got up without saying anything, climbed the tree we were sitting under. I wanted to go up after her, grab her in the branches and shake her, but I was burning to drag her back down, tussle and overcome her, but then I could never bring myself to climb beyond that first large branch, not even from the height, but somehow I could never abide that subtle sway of living whims, stake anything on their pliant strength. And it's, you know, it's wonderful sentences and some beautiful descriptions in there, and I think it's symbolically, as so many of the scenes in this book are, meaningful. I thought it was meaningful when I was reading it and thought it was like kind of interesting, and then after I finished it, I thought, yeah, but it's just maybe a touch too much, maybe a touch yeah. too absurdist for for me. Um, 
not a ton of moments like that, but I just thought I'd bring that one up quick. I also, so that was my low as well, was that although I enjoyed overall the the metaphors that and, and word choices that uh, Lee uses, I think that sometimes in a couple of instances, those metaphors are a bit contrived at times. Yeah. yeah. So the tree one, 100% agree with you where I was just kind of like, yeah, okay. Yeah, like that's like, I mean, smashing me over the head with it. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the other instance for me was the imaginary brother. Discussion. Oh, yeah. I completely forgot about that. But yeah, I, yes, I agree. And that yeah. was, gosh, what did he say about that? His imaginary. I forgot. I remember him interjecting that into the text and that it was sort of this friend. What did they talk about? Well, so the the imaginary brother was just all the things that Lee wasn't. He was confident. That, oh, he yes. spoke perfectly. Gotcha. He um like went up and made friends easily. Yes. Right. All the things that Lee wanted to be. He was like the American version of himself is how gotcha. he saw it. That's what it was. Yeah. 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 No, I and I think it's We've chosen a couple books now in a row, maybe. Is this in a row with Bluest Eye? I can't remember the yeah, one. Now. Yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. By first-time writers. or for, You know, at this point, they're both well-recognized, respected writers. But this was their first publishing. And they both, I think, show signs of that just in terms of, I think, going for it a bit too much. But I, better to swing hard, I say. I, again, it yeah. didn't put me off of the whole story very far from that. I enjoyed 99% of it or whatever. But there were times when it felt... You know, maybe a bit too forceful in what it was trying to do. Any final thoughts, highs or lows? Nope, all good. Let's let's move to the imaginary essays then. This is when Amanda and I give each other a prompt about the book. The book in its entirety, too. The whole thing is fair game. This is an analytical tool we use. We don't actually have essays prepared, of course. But as educators or former educators, we do like to use essay prompts to kind of give us a lens through which to talk about the book or analyze it and just bring up different discussion points. Why don't I throw mine at you first, Amanda? Because I did not prep for this, as we discussed before the pod. I for, <laughs> I made one, and then I, for you, and then I forgot to prep for mine. So mine will be, I think, a little shorter than my usual ones, probably yeah. for the better. Maybe I go on too long, but let me throw mine at you first, and it'll give me a second to reflect here. So, my essay prompt for you is: This is a work that melds some pretty high-minded literary aspirations, like you said, the way it plays with language and form the way that introspection can be really expansive. There are obviously capital big issues in this book, political issues, identity issues, even love, marriage comes up. Anyway, loss of a child. This book's checking a lot of, I don't know, intense boxes. But then again, it's a spy story, right? Which can be more considered genre fiction, something maybe just fun and lighter. I, I want you to interrogate the latter, the genre part of it. What do you think it gains from being a spy thriller? What do you think it gains from those trappings? And then also, what does it lose, if anything, or mishandle, if anything? Cool. Um, so I divided my my response into gains versus um, gaining something mm-hmm. versus losing something. So I'll start with the gains because I feel like it gains a lot more from uh, the spy thriller okay. trappings yeah. rather than losing from it. So the first thing that popped to my mind was that it creates an exciting backdrop for the immigrant experience. We, we are, or at least in, in my readings of um, immigrant stories, memoirs, and, and just fiction, it tends to be more of almost like family dramas in a lot of ways, where there's a lot of focus as well on like the, the um, home, the native country of the 
of the person or of the parents where it's more of like the conflicts there that led to their decision to come to America. Um, and then the, the family trappings of that. Whereas with this one, there is actually, yes, you still get that family drama, but you also get the, um, the exciting, like New York lifestyle and like what it is to, to be a working American with an immigrant background. So I thought that that was a unique, it's a very Mm -hmm. unique way of telling the experience, uh, the immigrant experience. So I really enjoyed that aspect. And I thought that this gained from that. Mm -hmm. Um, Another thing is that, Uh, The spy story highlights Henry's identity issues as it relates to relationships and situations outside of the family circle. So it it really highlights the the issue of identity for immigrants, especially for Henry, obviously. Um, And the idea of identity fluidity for immigrants, where like you're one way with like one group of people, but one way with another group of people, depending on um, who you're around. and also the idea of identity loss um, because of the the need almost of for assimilation in American culture. So there's also that sense of, of loss of self. And um, it also, this backdrop, uh, the spy backdrop, really emphasizes the sense of betrayal um, in this story, this sense of betrayal of of a community and of a person. Yeah. So I think that really blows that up to be like this big thing that um, um, that is not just a personal thing, but can be uh, almost like a community wide sense of betrayal in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, which I really enjoyed. And it did allow for I. I'm going to do the annoying thing I do, but I'll try and keep it brief. Under 30 seconds, time here. I'm just imagining this book is another book. Imagine this book is, he was a sincere, actual, maybe post-college grad worker for Kwong, gets gets worked in with him, is in his group, and then still has the betrayal, still has the connection. So, like, I just, that's the book I was kind of imagining in my mind. But the, mm-hmm. I guess if that were the book, right, if it were he actually believed in Kwong, met him naturally, actually worked for him, all that stuff... The thing it would lose is then the connection he had to the therapist that he that job he had just failed. That mm-hmm. I think is meant to sort of I don't know initiate some of these questions in him and sort of kick right. that off. So the fact mm-hmm. that he's coming off of that, this book also is just kind of an in Medias Res book for him and his wife. It is for him and his his now deceased son. It is like it's he's his life has kind of happened a lot of it, and which I think changes the tenor of the book a lot too anyway yeah so i didn't want to do the thing again where i imagine a completely other book but i i don't know i can't help myself i suppose anyway (laughs) it's cool (laughs) um i think um so also i think that this um the spy thriller backdrop also helps to highlight the complicated relationship with his father father figures and relationships with men in general because taking your idea of like, even if um, you had rewrote this book to take away the spy thing, but have him be working with Kwong, you would still only have Kwong and his actual father as the father figures. But with the spy drop backdrop, we have Hoagland who is like super American, right? Right. Right. As like an anti father figure, almost in a lot of ways. And then you also have Jack who is not Korean, but is still an immigrant. So you still, I think you get to see what his relationships with those men are. And it really kind of like highlights, um, a lot of his father 
issues. <laughs> yeah, Jack especially feels essential in that regard. Right. Um, so that was pretty important. And I think that the the spy backdrop also is, is the, it creates the opportunity and the catharsis that pushes him to begin a new life, to really analyze who he is, he is, and make some changes. So um, versus if it were just a family drama, there's no necessary, if it's just a family drama, which is the what I would was imagining would be, yeah. it would be without like the spy drop, you wouldn't necessarily have that push to really um try to figure out who you are as a person um it's more of like just looking at the conflict of like who am i right but this mm-hmm. gives the opportunity with as you mentioned um luzan the um the psychologist the the ability for henry as a character to begin that search to begin really looking at himself as like, who am I actually? And how, how can I yeah. change myself to be a better person? Yeah, completely. Are there any, does it lose anything, do you think? Yep. So um, for me, I just said that uh, what it could lose is that there uh, the, is the focus on really personal situations for Henry, um, which is what a family drama would do is just it's hyper personal. Whereas with Henry, yes, we get some personal stuff, but it's almost like Henry is just a vehicle for all immigrants um, or at least like Korean immigrants in a lot of ways. So um, it could have focused on his relationship with his family more in place of the spy aspects. Um, but the way that it is now, the focus is more grand and more encompassing. And it's poking more at the grand scheme of the Ameri- immigrant experience instead of just a super personal um, take on it, which might make it seem like it's almost preachy or even overreaching in its themes, but that's the stuff that I think really makes it so amazing as a read. Yeah. Yeah, no, completely. I I would agree. The things that it can do with identity because of, I mean, in spy fiction, who the person is and if they even exist underneath all the layers of governmental spy training or what have you (laughs) is such a key idea. So to put that into here, and layer that again within things about immigration identity seems yeah, perfectly fitting. I thought it really worked. Yeah. Any final thoughts on that and on how it worked? No. Excellent. Okay. Why don't you throw your prompt my way? I'll do my best again without any preparation. <laughs> Freestyle. <laughs> <Yeah>. Good luck. <laughs> um, uh, this novel explores Henry's relationships with men, as I, I mentioned before, and as you mentioned on the previous podcast, um, as father figures extensively, his actual father, Kwong, Jack, even Hoagland. But what about the women? How would you characterize or explain Henry's relationship with women? There's his mother, there's Ajima, his wife, and even Sherry. I think I would center around his wife, just because especially the way the book concludes, their relationship is stronger. They seem to be more open. There are also some pretty potent scenes when the, after their son dies, or you know, even building up to that, the way that they raise him, the way they care for him, the, their intimacy around him. And I think he's most delicate with his wife, too. The scenes, we didn't quote from these or talk about these. Maybe we're prudish or something, Amanda. But they there are a couple of scenes where they have sex make or make love, however you'd prefer to phrase that. But they, which I think were pretty tender. There's a scene, too, where they kind of find each other again. And they, they have sex again for the first time in a long time since they've been separated. Since she, like, went to Italy or wherever it was or did her trip. And they're kind of working back in together. And I thought those scenes were pretty well written and pretty well done. They're... You know, as you'd expect from a literary person writing in this way, they're they're 
tender and they're not too graphic, but they are, I don't know, they're pretty passionate too. Anyway, mm-hmm. and I think in those scenes, he's portrayed as being, you know, he's very thoughtful, careful, and delicate with her. And so I think she is maybe the figure of kind of peace or harmony in that regard. I think the the ones I would have a harder time interrogating would definitely be his mom and his Ajima, the woman whose name he didn't know. It was just a servant for him in his mind. I mean, that's the one, too, where his wife gets into a conflict with him about his lack of personal connection to her that leads her to try and reach out. I think that... Do you remember that part? Mm-hmm. Then yep. they kind of... Her and the Ajima have kind of a spat, too, over it. So there's that conflict, too, that he... I don't know, he didn't create that directly, but his lack of connection to her, you know, annoyed his wife. And so I think, I don't know, in that way, the connections to his mom and and her do feel less personal. Maybe, though, that's part of the, maybe that would be part of a cultural reading is that he sort of does the job in both, in both vectors or something. It's maybe a form of code switching type behavior where his relationship to his mom was a bit more reserved and same with her was maybe a bit more formal but then with his wife, who is a you know white American woman, it is different, is significantly more, I don't know, open, impassioned or something like that. But again, even that's something that she complains about, too. Look at the list at the beginning, right? He's clearly somebody she feels like can be withholding and doesn't really reach out or doesn't express himself the way he should. But I, I do feel a divide there. Again, maybe that's where the final scene is meant to reconcile some of those things and bring some harmony into it or something. And so mm-hmm. the the only thing with Sherry I'm thinking back on too, maybe you can give me your reading of this is, well, I guess we can start with this. Do you think Sherry and Kwong were having some kind of affair of some kind? Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. There, he touches her back at some point and he notices then, of course he picks her up and go at 3am to go to the, the entertainment club. And so something there's, yeah, some kind of extra something relationship happening there beyond just politician and manager and also didn't it say that her husband is a big business doesn't he's never around or something they're yeah. kind of and fl- like mm-hmm. they hadn't had sex in like over a year yeah they're yeah they're kind of separating in their own way too so anyway okay so we there's that but there's a, a scene where and i i didn't prep any of the pages for this going off the cuff but i remember the description where Sherry is kind of going to trust Henry more. I think it's after the bombing. She's discussing maybe we're going to give you more responsibility. And she touches his shoulder. And his reflection at that time is something along the lines of, I was really confused by the touch because it definitely wasn't sexual, but it also wasn't maternal. It was some other thing. It was the way she touched me or the way she would kind of be kind toward me didn't really fit those categorizations. And maybe that's just the way he processes those relationships with women. Either they're there to kind of maternally care for him in in a way that he understands, which is sort of in a strict way, you know, loving but strict, maybe a little bit distant. Or it's sort of, you know, you're you're my partner, my lover, and that's when we have that relationship together, that passion. And yeah, I, I guess Sherry, I don't know, something about that passage felt he, he didn't he didn't know how to respond to it. Like it's it's almost like he'd never had a, a friendly buddy before or, you know, or like a coworker who I guess Jack is that to him in a way. But it's he's never had a coworker who just sort of trusts him and believes in him in a maybe a I don't know, a kinder, gentler way. So mm-hmm. I remember that passage pretty vividly. I don't I don't know if you had any reaction to it. Yeah, I remember that passage as well. Um, And he, um, Henry, makes the point of saying, like, I know, like, this is not a sexual touch. It's he's he's it's a transference of understanding because Sherry is also Chinese American. And so there are a lot of like 
the, when he talks about like the Confucian principles and stuff like that, the there's a lot of similarities, broad similarities in the cultures. Mm-hmm. And so he was saying that um, with Sherry um, specifically, I remember he said, I wish that I had the, the quote in front of me, yeah, but sorry. I don't. So <laughs> I had written it down in my notes, but I have so many notes. Yeah, um, fair. Um, anyway, so he was saying that the touch was just a transference of, of like, you will do this for me for the community. It's a cultural understanding. It's a community understanding. Right. It's a way of exerting power over him because of that understanding rather than if like some, if Janice did the same thing, right? Who is, mm-hmm. who is just like full on American. If Janice were to do the same thing, it wouldn't have that same meaning. And they, she wouldn't touch him in that way either, because mm. she doesn't have that cultural understanding. So Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, I really I, I thought that, that was great. And it's really interesting to me too that the only two like white women or rather American women that he encounters um are really just Janice and his wife. And with both of mm-hmm. them, the way that he interacts with them is is more friendly. I think so. Yeah, than than the Asian yeah. uh, women that he interacts with, yeah. his mother. The the real essay version of this, maybe I would have had more of a thesis together if I had done my job. But <laughs> on the off the cuff, maybe I can you know duct tape together this. It, it it does almost feel like because all the scenes with his mother are in flashback, and the scenes with his wife are in what whatever this book would consider present tense, roughly. There, I think there could be a, a bit of a compare and contrast you could do here, and almost that he. He's sort of taking from one group and then giving to his wife, or maybe take and give is it harsh. Maybe that he's sort of learning from one and then adjusting, adopting, in a sense yeah. anyway. I don't know if I would do a harsh reading into this being like he has two selves and that, you know, it's it's he can turn them on and off. I know I mentioned code switching earlier, but maybe my reading wouldn't be quite that harsh. But it does, you're right, I, there's enough of a dichotomy there that it did, it felt really distinct to me too, and yeah, anyway, especially the scenes, some of the scenes with his wife feel, you know, like he's opening up more, he's putting a mm-hmm. bit more direct emotion out there. Anyway, yeah, so I think that could be one of the readings. Yeah. Cool. And uh, any thoughts for you on his relationships to women? Did I miss any of the major characters? Any moments that I that I didn't mention? There's probably a bunch. No, I that thought that you did a good job. Okay. A plus. I, I, honestly, because so much of his mom is in the first half of the book, too. That's the part I would have yeah. needed the prep for because I've, yeah. I've been so focused on the second half for this recording that I, I'm sure there were scenes in the first half, too. Could, and then also, I, like I said, you know, I've I've got my lens and I'm sticking to it. It does feel like such a dad story to me, too. Yeah. <laughs> Not that I wasn't paying attention, but man, that's, uh, yeah, if I were given the prompt to pick between those two, I'd be be running right for the dad's reading of this book (laughs) (laughs) right for the father figures reading between yeah between his dad and kwong that's it's just too much to not read into and then jack is a good jack's a good little corkscrew in there for that too Mm -hmm. i think so yeah okay let's move now to the lost pages this is when we express some of the things we wish were in the book or we talk about a topic character or conflict anything story-based that would make for another maybe good addition a, a side work something that felt underexplored basically that we wish for more of how about for you amanda what are your uh, lost pages for this novel um i would love to see more of mitt henry's yeah. son um yeah I would, especially henry's interactions with mitt we see a lot more of lilia's interactions with mitt than we do Henry's interactions with mm-hmm. Um and and especially as as you mentioned, since this is like a father son 
novel, it's, I think, pretty telling or it's perhaps really symbolic even um, that there aren't as many interactions between Henry and Mitt and the one right. and the interactions that he does have with Mitt are like he's being very careful and very like he doesn't want to scar him he doesn't want to like discourage him and stuff like he's very careful in his interactions with Mitt which is really interesting and I just think that yeah. maybe like a, a little short story about it or something would be great. Um, and we do get some pieces of, of what kind of father Henry was, um, including some really painful scenes. And mm-hmm. I would just love to see more of that tenderness, that care that he puts into being um, with with Mitt, um, especially in contrast to how his own father had treated him. And also, like, the scenes with Henry's father and Mitt are... Yeah, I think just really sweet, and yeah. I just I just loved all of that, and I just was like, oh, I would love to read more of that. I was going to say, <laughs> so tantalizingly, the book did give you, I think, one or two brief moments when Mitt is with his father. So that's yeah, and it well, and of course, Mitt's death scene, his father is there too, isn't he, in the background yeah. or something? He sort of looks on. Yeah, he runs happens. out. He was calling nine one one. He runs yeah. out, and uh, on the phone, he just like he collapses from oh, grief. Okay, I couldn't. I remembered. Uh, it's his wife. He's in the car in the front yard or something. I've, Henry yeah. is, I mean. It's mm-hmm. I, yeah. The, the the specifics of it, little f- hazy. I remember that he died from being suffocated, b- being piled on by the the boys who had otherwise bullied and betrayed him. It was this. Yeah. Again, as a moment of symbolism, it's pretty pretty intense, pretty potent. But no, yeah. it's Mitt. Um, yeah, pretty underlooked. Yeah, very a very reserved. I don't know. What what's your ultimate reading of the lack of myth then? Maybe just page count, huh? I don't know. Could just be practical. <laughs> I think that it's meant to um show how much how how Henry actually does portray like how he shows his love. He was so just like with the way that he is with Lelia, he's very careful to try to encourage and try to not mess up anything. It's almost like he's afraid of messing up with both of them. Right. Right. Um, and so I think that was just the the ultimate takeaway I had with that. And I'm not 100%. I guess it's just with Lelia, it almost like he, Mitt isn't necessary, but Mitt is necessary in order to create the conflict between Lelia and and Henry and to really like he, blow that up. He's so. delicate too towards the end when there there's a brief conversation though it's a left pretty inferential in the story but the reading I gave was they did discuss having another kid. There's talk of something like we yeah. might be running out of time or would would we be doing this just for us or is this something we actually think we could do and you know successfully accomplish and bring forward or is this just sort of us trying to fill some cavern or void in the relationship and so I, between that reflection or that discussion plus the way it wraps up, I don't know. I feel like, yeah, that they might be having another kid or something. But Yeah, I think so. I think for me there are two lost pages I was drawn to right away. The first most obvious one for people who just enjoyed the spy components of this, just some kind of short story collection or maybe a different novel. I put more ambitious novel because I think it would be longer to have to go through the history of it, but not more ambitious in terms of theme or ideas, but like in size, but just depicting what Hoagland is doing. Even he speaks so vaguely about, you know, it's, Mm -hmm. I'm everywhere. It's internet, you know, the powers of the world you can never control. You can't see the whole picture. It's 
So it's just like amorphous, you know, power entity, governmental conspiracy stuff. So I just think there could be a book there of, you know, what what's everyone up to? How many people work for them? You know, what's Jack relation? What's his job look like versus I forget the two people he meets at the end who are now dating the two spies. Pete and the girl. Rose. No, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Pete and the she was hired because she looks Russian or something. She looks, yeah, Eastern, she, European. She looks Eastern European. Yeah. Yeah. We'll go with Rose for now. But yes. So some version where either they each get a little short story and it's just about the agency or Maybe it's a book about, yeah, all of their entanglements together and what exactly Hogan is trying, what Hoagland is doing there. What's his ambition or goal? Because he almost seems nihilistic or something, in, in a way, I don't know, or maybe just American. So we never get the full sense of scope and purpose of that place, which I think is kind of the point anyway, because this really isn't a book about that 100%. It's a vehicle, you know. And so the other the other lost pages for me, though, would be a more focused story, maybe a novel or something, on how Jack slowly fell into the life of organized crime or spycraft and how those things transferred. Now, he does give us a great, very thorough paragraph about when he's trying to discuss with Henry or make it clear, you know, you're not like me. I'm an actual killer. I was in, I was just a street criminal doing murders and things and then fell into Mm -hmm. bigger and bigger operations, kind of fell backwards into this life. So there is a paragraph version, but I think, you know, between... The way Jack's life concluded, this kind of quiet, almost retirement life, but then, you know, his wife died, and that that was its own, I don't know, horrifying thing for him. But, yeah, anyway, he seems like he had an interesting life, you know, as kind of a somebody who falls backwards into the spy game. So I thought that might be make for another good book or something. Yeah, I think Jack's story would be really interesting as yeah. well. And he, he comes from, like, a different immigrant background, too, um, as far as, like he's like full grown when he comes to America. Whereas Mm -hmm. Henry uh, was actually born in America. We finally find that out at the end. Barely. Um, That was a pretty interesting symbolic moment, huh? Yeah. On the plane. uh, Yeah. Talk about an interesting immigrant experience story as well from Jack's perspective. Totally. And how did he make it to America? He says he also worked for the CIA at some point. Yeah. But he's Greek. So well, yeah, the CIA, of course, is quite interested in recruiting other nationals. <laughs> That's, you mm-hmm. know, very helpful, I th- imagine, in Spycraft is if you have people working for you from other places. So anyway, no, I'm glad you brought up the moment on the plane. That was because we were wondering that in the first half because we kept assuming yeah. he was a citizen just naturally born, but we didn't know, you know. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I think the more I looked at these, mine are clearly I went for this week's or for this book, I went to completely new books. Yours, I think, is the perfect answer for what should have actually just been in the book, I think. Mine, I don't think, would have made the book better. I think mine are just like, <laughs> I want these to be there. <laughs> Yours is actually something that would have helped the book, I think. Maybe. Anyway, it was pretty complete anyway. Any other thoughts on Lost Pages? No. Excellent. Well, we'll conclude the second book club, as we always do, by reaching outside for some critical assistance. We always like to conclude with some criticism. We pull some quotes and discussion from other places, you know, try and get some other opinions on the podcast. Amanda, I'll have you start us off again. Where did you pull from and what quotes do you want to start with? Yeah, um, I pulled from the New York Times, um, and it's an article called Excess Identities by Rand Richards Cooper. Mm -hmm. And this is actually written in 95. This book was, um, the copyright, I think, is 93, maybe. Perfect. Um, Or something like that, 90... 95 as well. So, okay, yeah. 
Um, so it was written the same year that the, the book was released. And um, I, I pulled some stuff from here specifically um, because Cooper talks about the this writer. He talks about the spy aspect of it and also the identity aspect of it. So I thought that it fit pretty well. Um, he did not like mm-hmm. the spy aspect. Okay. <laughs> Which I thought inter- I thought it was interesting because I enjoyed this by aspect and I, and I know like talking to you that you enjoyed it as well. So these are some of the things that he Go said ahead. that he didn't like about it. Um, he says uh, native speaker has some glaring flaws. Its plot is implausible and overblown. The tense shifts unnecessarily in mid novel, producing sentences like. Yesterday, we're in Ozone Park, and central characters like John Kwong exist less in their own right than as father figures trucked in as therapy for the narrator. Mr. Lee's prose is wildly uneven as well, its tone now breezy and ironic, now ponderously melodramatic. That Mr. Lee can make these mistakes and still have something fine to offer shows just how talented he is. And what you have left is a tender meditation on love, loss, and family. Yeah. Ponderously Um, melodramatic does... Yeah, There's so. a ring of truth in it for me. A, a slight ring. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, I mean, we did talk about, like, the melodramatic, I think, for me, would be more so the, like, mm-hmm. over-the-top mm-hmm. metaphors. Those few, I suppose. But um, the, I, I didn't find it as... Plausibility for me with novels is is a weird thing where I can immerse myself. There's not much that's really going to kick me out of that unless it's something that I'm just like, I roll my eyes yeah. and I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay, like, for real. But, yeah, like, I didn't feel like... I wasn't struck by how implausible the, the story I wonder which or part. like that for me. Um, perhaps because I was looking at the immigrant experience more so than I can't even fathom which else. part. The money laundering aspect of it or like the money management? I don't... But I... Like that, that yeah. couldn't be run or couldn't be done? Maybe... maybe I, don't, I'm, I really can't think of a plot point. Like maybe the bomb thing is like, oh, that bomb would be too big. No one can just home make a bomb that big. Or I, I don't know. Maybe something like that. I can't think of a... I, so a quote I pulled, I'm not going to read it, but I was reading a review that said something like, this book, you know it's a spy story because it's so dense with plot that you can't summarize it. And I read that and thought, I think you could summarize this so simply. <laughs> like, it's really not that complicated yeah, at all. Yeah, really I, I didn't think... <laughs> Am I? Did we misread this it's book? <laughs> I, I thought the plot was really the spy part of it was really straightforward. Like he's he's meant to get information off this guy, works for him. Eventually, he finds out the guy's running like a money helping scheme, but apparently is not taking any money. It's like a it's a sincere, genuine effort of improvement. He's just doing it to, for efficiency, and because the mm-hmm. immigrants are a lot of them are illegal, so he's doing it as a helping scheme. And then, yeah, he finds out one of his staff betrays him. Basically, what happens is he finds out a staff betrayed yeah. him. He kills him, and then spirals into a depression about it, and is found out. And then you know, and then Hoagland comes in because he because Henry did his job and unravels him. That's it's basically a money scheme. That's it with a bomb yep. in there because <laughs> of a yep. betrayal. I don't like. Yep. I, with yeah. mob ties, well, anyway, yeah. I wonder at that quote. I, I don't agree with it for sure. I thought the plot was maybe the... <laughs> if you were going to say anything about this book is easy, the, that would be the easy... The hard part is like all the ideas about identity working in it, I think. Yeah, that's, I would agree. <laughs> yeah. yeah, completely. What other quotes from it you want to talk about? Um, 
He says, native speaker brims with intrigue and political hijinks, but Mr. Lee, who came to this country from South Korea when he was three years old, is no spy novelist. That's true. His interest lies in language, culture, and identity. For him, the spy makes a convenient symbol for the American immigrant. We may consider a spy with his zealot-like ability to fade into the background to be a born assimilator, but Mr. Lee slyly suggests the opposite. The immigrant's assimilated son is a born spy. And then he goes on to say, hidden inside native speaker is a memoir struggling to get out. A rapturous evocation of a past life viewed across a great gap of time and culture. I wish Chung Rae Lee had scrapped the spy stuff and written that book. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I I mean, we, we've covered it pretty well, but I guess given the quotes, we'll retread some of that ground. It's not a spy novel first, but it dedicated more pages to that than I expected. I, yeah. That was how the first 50 pages struck me. It really, it does a lot of front loading in that regard. And even when he gets into the Kwong inner circle and is kind of working that, there are times when the spy aspect fades away a bit when it's, again, because it's just about his relationship to this other Korean immigrant or this other Korean man, Korean American man, and kind of what they're trying to accomplish in their country mm-hmm. in America. And so I, yeah, there are times when it kind of faded away, but as he says, it makes a convenient symbol. I think he makes more than a convenience out of it, though. Later. I, yeah, when the use of the word convenient, I was like, ah. <laughs> I do Well, I suppose it's just convenient because, as we've said, the whole nature of a spy is I have 20 identities, which is real. And this yeah. is this book asks a similar question, like who who should Henry be? To whom is he beholden? Should he be beholden to anyone? Mm-hmm. And, you know, who should he be? I I think it's, again, convenient, sure, because they're both identity-based conflicts, but I don't I don't think the book gives any convenience to it or gives convenient answers. I agree. Yeah, it's, it's way more complex. And I found it interesting that he was talking about it's almost a memoir and he actually would prefer it to be a memoir. I, I completely disagree with that because it... it this novel is just so unique and it's so different from what you would normally get from an immigrant experience novel. So yeah, I think so too. Any other quotes from that one you want to talk about? Nope. That's it. Okay. I was, I was stuck on one. I see you have pasted in the doc here when it mentions the example of his father being kind of a a successful grocer. So imbued with habits of work and he's very stoic and everything. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. And then it says yet after his father's death, that creed creates deep anguish and remorse in the son, which I suppose is true that uh, the relationship has reverberating effects. Yeah. So. And, and it develops over time too, even after his father dies, like more towards the beginning of the novel, as far as his memory of that goes. And then towards the end, we see more of the tender memories of him. Mm-hmm. Uh, the memoir struggling to get out criticism is another one that I, there's a faint ringing of truth in that, that I, because, you know, because we know that Lee, of course, is a Korean immigrant, this, the main character is two of, of a sort. Of, well, he's American, but, we, you know, you get what I mean. Anyway, a, a novel of Korean immigration for sure. But it, so I, yeah, I see that criticism. I kind of nod at it, but also then think, well, let's back up and just ask a simpler question first, which is, does this book function as a novel well? Which I think it really does. It so does, I guess yeah. yeah, that that criticism might be true. I look at it and think like, yeah, but... I mean, we can always don't do what I do. Don't imagine other books. <laughs> take the book as it comes, I suppose. <laughs> Should take my own advice or something, maybe. But okay, my criticism comes from the LA Review of Books, which I've drawn on before, but mostly because it's free. So shout outs to you, LA Review of Books. Feed me some ads. It is called Chang Ray Lee's Realism by Min Hyung 
song, which I believe the middle name I pronounced correctly, hopefully. Um, this is more of a retrospective of his entire works up to the point of a more recently published dystopian book called On Such a Full Sea, which is the first Lee book I had ever read, FYI. Mm. So this article was was more vast in scope. It talked about all of his novels up to that point mm-hmm. and sort of the realism he depicts and what it, how it works. But there was a significant portion dedicated to native speaker. So that's the parts I'm going to at least talk through and quote from. There's a line that the author focuses on, and in it it says, to say that last stop is mine, those are quotes, also suggests a double meaning. Is it merely the stop Henry Park, the novelist protagonist, needs to get off to go where he's going? Or does he belong to the stop in some way? Does it have a claim on him so that his arrival feels like a homecoming? Likewise, to pair Main Street with Flushing seems to make a larger point about where the latter should be mapped in the reader's imagination. It's not a place where a lot of non-whites and immigrants live, a place far and other to the steely affluence of Manhattan, but something evocative of the very heartland of the nation, that's the Main Street part, an extension of the mythical small town with its multitudinous Main Streets. And then to follow that up, I know this is a really long quote, but there's a follow-up thought on that. Tarrying over passages such as this, readers might understandably fail to remember that they are reading a spy thriller. The plot is as convoluted and as central to the characters as any found in a work by Ian Fleming, John le Carre, or Tom Clancy. Just try to summarize it and see what happens. And then let's pause there, because that was the quote I alluded to earlier. Like, mm-hmm. I actually don't think it's that hard to summarize the plot, but whatever. It's not. <laughs> so, but I think they hit upon something, the author hits upon something important here, which is all of the language in the book, and again, especially the way it plays with the setting, the way it depicts New York, I feel is very tangled and does some important, you know, quote unquote, American work. I think they chose a quote with their last stop mine and then the Main Street thought with Flushing. They they bring up some good examples, analyze them well, but that I agree that it's, you do get the spy thriller kind of grafted on to a reflection on who should an American be and how can I be an American as an yeah. uh, immigrant or, you know, coming from immigrant family. So I, I think all of that's well taken. I I think they accept the plot, the sorry, the spy plot maybe more than your critic did. But mm-hmm. I, yeah, I just thought that was a good analysis of a, an example. So yeah, I, I like um, songs. Um, I like her um, discussion of this idea of like Main Street flushing, and then the the idea of like the the immigrants are not there um, as far as like the 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 white neighborhoods, the affluent neighborhoods, whereas we um, have like um, Henry's father who lives in mm-hmm. out in the uh, in the suburbs which is like more of the affluent more middle class perhaps even of of like super american almost like just so american yeah and i, I yeah. like that analysis that she kind of brings brings up in her and that was his desire if you remember there's a passage mm-hmm. when henry's reflecting on well his father when he first had the gay with his with koreans only and they yep. they were living in an apartment above where they worked they were piled on top of each other it was it was claustrophobic but then he had such camaraderie too he had more activities with friends with their other korean immigrants he knew but mm-hmm. of course the he you know he either fell victim to or fulfilled, however you want to read it, the American dream of he finally got out, was able to you know buy some land and spread his wings a little and get to the suburbs, et cetera, all that you know American stuff. Yeah. So you know, there's that part too. Um, other quotes here that we can talk about. To be sure, native speaker takes liberties with the spy genre by centering character, setting, and style over plot. Hard agree for me. This slows the pace down, letting the novel go deep in a way popular storytelling, which is usually, by contrast, focuses on what happens next. 
cannot do as well. No one, I suspect, has ever shelved this novel in the same bookstore section as Casino Royale or Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. I don't, just a quote that I nod my head at. I'm not sure if you have any thoughts on that. I was nodding my head the entire time you were reading that. <laughs> yeah, I would not, if I were running the local Barnes and Noble, well, let's just go local, but if I was running the Park Road Books, <laughs> we'll go we'll shout out to a local business. But yeah, if I, I would definitely not put this book in the spy thriller genre section, which right. or like mystery thriller. I feel like that's its own section in bookstores. Mm-hmm. This book I would not put there, but it, yeah. but it's so much more in the book that it, yeah. Anyway, final quote from this one. If spies are always asking us to mistrust appearances and to question what we know of cause and effect, then perhaps the immigrant as a kind of spy is also someone in disguise involved in a plot thick with confusing twists of identity. By the end, whatever they ha- they might have thought of the experience, readers can't help but be impressed by native speakers' formal daring and linguistic virtuosity. So a couple thoughts on that. Yes, I think it is linguistically... Uh, it is a virtuosity, virtuous um, and virtuoso rather performance. So it, I think it does pull off things and makes those reflections on identity really potent and really intense. I do think too that by the end, it could have maybe used a little bit more of Henry as spy, but I think the way it goes back and and shows the scenes with this therapist, it, it's just enough for me to believe too that it was the right genre vehicle. That there, this idea mm-hmm. of he is a spy, but an immigrant. How do these two things bleed together? How similar are these experiences? And the way, of course, in the end, his spy work betray, like really harshly and clearly, expressly betrays Kwong and and betrays that part of him. Is yeah, I think those things all really clicked into being. And it's a, without that, that final plot twist couldn't have happened in that way, you know. And I yeah. so I just think it did end up coming together, coalescing for me. But I think in, you know, as I've said many, many times, this will be the final. There were certain shifts in the story. There were certain chapter breaks or, you know, passage breaks where you go from that spy talk to paragraphs of reflection that maybe didn't work 100%, but that's okay. It didn't need to to be great. Mm-hmm. Any final thoughts on that one? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so with with the idea of, like, the, the spy novel and... It says perhaps the immigrant is a as a kind of spy is also someone in disguise involved in a plot thick with confusing twists of identity. I like that she pointed out that it's it's tied very much so with the sense of identity, and it brings to mind for me. Henry points out that the job of a spy, at least the kind of spy that he is, a corporate spy, is to be an observer, to not mm-hmm. be somebody in the forefront, not somebody who is active. Versus when he quits being a spy and he starts helping Lilia, that's when he is more active. He's no Mm -hmm. longer an observer. He actively is participating with Lilia in these classes. So that that identity um, grasping, I guess, or shifting, perhaps, um, I think that was um, an important aspect of that, that spy story as well he's hugging and kissing mm-hmm. you know hugging and kissing. <laughs> his, 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 that's right <laughs> his way to a, a bit of a resolution the final thing i just thought to say on the the spy identities part that perhaps we should have done more of an analysis on but it's too late now we're wrapping this up but the, <laughs> i i just think now back to some of the spy exchanges with jack who again is an immigrant but then hoagland who's not but so much of what they say 
feels very firm and final and they try and make things seem simple you know like you're doing a fine job it's good you know it's okay don't think about it don't worry about it like it's okay mm-hmm. just do they 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 do so much kind of talking down and they try and i don't know compress the problem or simplify it or just present it in a very clean manner when the book obviously is going at great lengths to prove that nothing about this is clean his identity is a mess and that th- there are so many influences pulling and pushing on him and, you know, how that shows up with his wife, with their son. And anyway, the book, yeah, I think it, it does a good job presenting complex connections. But if we were to do a deeper dive analysis into the dialogue of the spies, it is so often that they're trying to make things seem so simple in, in mm-hmm. a way that is almost, you know, compared to the rest of the book, feels almost hostile or something in a way yeah. where they're maybe downplaying it. Right. Yeah. But, yeah, that's something for a, for another podcast to take up. Because our analysis is done, Amanda. <laughs> we can send in our final report. Nice. <laughs> do you have any, before we officially sign off on that report and send it over to Hoagland, do you have any final thoughts on Native Speaker by Chong Ray Lee? No, I'm I'm excited to read another novel by him. I have another one, so. Excellent. Okay. In my free time, that's what I'll be reading. Yeah, I did On Such a Full Sea, which I thought that one... I was looking for maybe more literary dystopian books because I had been caught up at that point in my reading in a lot of just YA, young adult, quick moving, fast action. And I think it fulfilled that. I remember thinking it was pretty interesting and pretty good. I think this was a better work overall, but I did like On Such a Full Sea. I would recommend it to somebody who, if you really like dystopian books and maybe want something a little bit slower, a little more thoughtful and literary, I enjoyed it. I thought it was good, so... I also read that years ago now, so my memory might be shaky, but okay. Thanks again for listening. We have been, as I mentioned, the Lightly Literary Podcast. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at the Lightly Literary Podcast, all one word. You can also rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. Please do so. It helps us out and you know, tell your friends about the show, family members, etc. We have other books coming up, of course, and let's tell you about them briefly before we close out. The next three books that we'll be covering, we'll do a brief description of them. We have Blood, Bones, and Butter by Gabriel Hamilton, which is a memoir about food and being a professional chef. Then we have Sansei and Sensibility by Karen Tay Yamashita. And what's that about, Amanda? That one is um, a collection of short stories um, that were a couple of those short stories are like kind of plays on. Yeah, the title is as well. So that's hopefully clear to the listener. And then after (laughs) that, we have coming up Devil in the White City by Eric Larson, a book that's been recommended to me by friends and family for years. It is about the Chicago World's Fair at the turn of the century, I think, 1900s, roughly, or 1900, Mm -hmm. I think, maybe late 1800s but it's about a serial killer and the it's a non-fiction account of what happened there and kind of an investigative read the first americans there uh, okay there we go a fascinating i mean gosh if we can't get people reading along for true crime if we can't entice the true crime crowd <laughs> then yeah our mission we were really faltering here in the mission so yeah we've got some mem- we've got a memoir some short stories and then some a longer non-fiction coming up so a good variety in the reading As always, we thank you so much for listening in. We will see you soon between the pages. 